So we are studying through the life of David. And of all David's story, and this is the most famous, the best well-known story, not just about David, but probably entire life. As a children, even when I was growing up, this used to be one of the most repeated children's stories. But as we are focusing on this David and Goliath story, my prayer is that we will put all the presumptions down and then really look at it. And I gained much insight, and I can hardly wait to share about this. In the span of David's life, not just the entire Bible, and David as a type of Christ, this story is monumentally important. There are at least three things. It is a heroic event that makes David known. Remember, he was personally anointed. Samuel was anointing him for future king. Personal circle in David's life and David's family. And uh, Samuel, of course God, knew about it. But this is the event will push out David publicly. It's almost uh, Jesus going into the public ministry. David is no longer nameless shepherd boy. He's a war, national hero, a rising star, rising leader of Israel. Secondly, it is also an event. Interestingly enough, it sounds like Climactic story, the ending of the movie kind of story, but it is actually beginning of his life of a persecution and suffering because of King Saul was jealous and chased after David to kill him. Ten plus years, he goes through a lot of suffering and persecution in God's sovereign plan. You see, when God appointed, chose him, now he's making a man of God out of him and training. Thirdly, it is most important, a most famous story of David's life, but often superficially understood and applied as a moral lesson for overcoming personal problems like this. We all heard and so familiar with this story. What is the lesson? Uh, we have a giant's problems in our personal lives, but if you, even if you're small and weak and underdog, if you have faith and be positive, you could overcome your personal giant. No, actually, that's not only superficial, but the central main lesson of this passage is not that. With that anticipation, we'll dig into the story itself. The first one is let's hear about Goliath. Goliath was one of those giant tribes. Even Goliath's brothers are mentioned in the later in the Bible. And they are huge as well. In verse 4, And there came out from the camp of Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, 
whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of coat was the 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and javelin of bronze slug between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighted 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Do you notice this descriptive details about what he's wearing, how he is? It's to portray the reality of terror that people felt that day. Six cubits and a span is nine feet, nine feet and nine inches. Oh, that's a tall. But some script, some uh, manuscripts and subtrusion, the Greek um, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, somehow mentions four cubits. And six uh, and, and a span, so which makes six feet nine. So in either way, what the scholars are saying, six feet nine, back then their standard, probably typical average height is five four or five five, and six feet nine was a humongous giant, and he was strong. Why? Because the the armor that he was wearing was hundred twenty five. Can you? Can you imagine that 125 pounds? You're carrying one of those, one of your thin people, you know? <laughs> and his weapons were advanced. Even the spear head weighted 600 shekels of iron, 20 pounds, 20 pounds of that. And he has all kinds of gadgets. And then he had also not only his hand shield, which is when you fight with sword on your right hand and shield on your to, to block it, right? But the shield bearer is one of those long, life-size, tall size to block the arrow. So one of the shield bearers is going ahead of him. And then he is shouting at the top of his lung. And that makes 40 days he's done that. Verse 8, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? I need to explain a little bit on this. There are the people, the Philistines are lived in a shore. And the Israel is little more higher mountain ground. And in order to take advantage of mountain ground, they wanted to come up. And then when Saul saw that, they came. And then he's calling it as a draw up a battle. In between, there's a valley of Elah. So no one wants to go there. Why? Because you get exposed as you're going down and going up. So what, he doing, what he's doing is... Uh, representation of their army. 
If I, let me read that. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Can you imagine every morning that this giant warrior comes out, shout at the top of his lung, insulting words. These insulting words were not just defying the army, but the army of the living God. Yahweh, the Lord, is dishonored and cursed here. Usually, Israelites, the name of the Lord is so precious, collect upon it. But at this point, everyone is terrified. So it, it, it probably has a psychological effect. It brings paralysis. If you hear morning and day, morning and evening, he shouts and challenges and defies. And every man, soldier of Israel is terrified and paralyzed. That's the context. And now, David, a shepherd boy who wasn't old enough to be enlisted in the army. The scholars tells us that tell us that um, the average age, the, the minimum age is 20. So uh, maybe he was 18, 19, 17, who knows? That's the, uh, the setting. And then he wasn't even sent to the battlefield. His three older brothers are, uh, went with Saul. And verse 25 picks up the story. And the man of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, Saul is desperate now. There's a reward, whoever steps up. And if you kill him, not only you will be, you will marry my daughter, in other words, his princess, and then I'll give you a lot of riches, and then your father will go free, meaning your father's house. The whole household will be tax-free from this point on in Israel. Verse 26, And David said to the man and who stood by him, who shall be do- What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is the, this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So, you know, what's going on is David has fresh eyes and fresh perspective in coming in. Uh, His dad sent him to bring some food to to his brothers and the cheese for the commander, for thousand, their thousand. And make sure that they're okay. Bring some token to me. So, you know, chapter 17 is a long chapter. So we're hearing some parts of it. I just thought about just telling it with my words. But I think it's important to hear the biblical description of that. So there are some parts that we're going to skip. But this is the part that I skip. Eliab, his eldest son. Remember, he looked like a king. Samuel said, this is the one, right? Eliab saw him who was really upset. And scolded him harshly in calling it, you're wicked. You came out to see the battle. Do you think it's a play, playground? My, my addition in there. So basically, David, instead of fighting with his brother, this is a kind of subtle wisdom, the side note, that he turns away. He shrugs his shoulder and it's just words. And then he turns to others. You know, in the church, we're praying for unity and praying for God-infused movement to the one same direction, whether it's serving the refuge, whether it's a food bank, whether it's a sheepfold, whether it's our children, our youth, whether it's our own, own home groups and men's group and women's group. But you know what? If we don't watch out, Instead of fighting the real enemy, the out there, the world, the, the Satan, we end up picking on each other. And Eliab, in this case, already shows that he's not a king material to begin with. And even the young boy, as David, shows the wisdom to turn away, not to get into, if he got into argument with his eldest brother, he can't fight. Goliath. He will be sent home. But I want us to notice the main motivation of David is holy anger, passionate, indignant. Anger. Because the name of the Lord is dishonored. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the Lord? The point is, unlike the children's story, this is an adult story for us. So it's not actually your personal giant problems. But it, it actually, you're you not dealing with personal enemy. We're dealing with enemy of God. In other words, the main uh, context of going into our New Testament application supposed to be about spiritual warfare. Not pragmatic self-help book that we could, even though we are underdog, we could win. So 
So what are the real lessons then? There are at least three. Here's number one. Real lessons are about how David's faith has been trained through everyday duty as a shepherd for this battle against Goliath, God's enemy. Verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to him, said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or, or bear, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So up until now, it sounds like, trust me, I have skills and power. I mean, just incredible story about this young boy killed lion and bear. Wow. But there is a behind story in that, if we continue to read. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So he is not actually bragging about his fighting experience or skill or, or power. He's actually sharing about, I have learned to trust the Lord in a supernatural way that God helped me. I have that experience. I have a confidence, not in myself, but in God, who is almighty. So David's perspective in this case was radically different from the Israel's army, including Saul. What he saw is an almighty God, far more capable, far more powerful than this giant. The question is, did he have fear? Of course. Courage emerges out of fear when you are actually doing the right thing. But his confidence and courage not came from his assessment of what he has, but in Almighty God and his trusting experiences of the Almighty God. Can you imagine? He hasn't done anything but at that battle. So I'm going to try now. Lord, help me. Give me faith. If I could do it, I could do it. There's no way. Spur of the moment. But several years of as a shepherd boy, 
he has experienced incredible help and trust in God. Let me ask you, and ask myself, do we do the spur of the moment? What would Jesus do? You are, you are extremely tempted. Oh, David, our David story is perfect example also too. At, in your company, you are asked to lie, asked to do something very immoral. And you go, what would Jesus do? Help me, Lord Jesus. If you haven't been trusting and experience of those times, you will not be able to say no. And in your, not only in your career, but in your marriage, in your parenting, in your anger, in every, every direction of our lives, we need to experience the training prepares us. David has been prepared. Guess what? Outwardly, he seems to be the last person as a candidate to fight Goliath among the all-Israel army. But in reality, God's sovereign plan, he is most prepared, most qualified of all because of his trusting experience, because of his experience with bears and lions. It brings down this very important point. Every day, David was faithful. The character was there. Are you faithful in your small things in your life, in your career? Are you fighting the small spiritual battles in your everyday life? That's the training ground. Don't look for the heroic moment. Oh, until then, I'm going to cruise along. Let's move on to the second lesson. The real lessons, secondly, is about, are, are about how David's victory over Goliath is not in spite of his weaknesses, but because of it. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and tried, to, tried in vain to go for he had not test, tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. I haven't used that before. I'm not experienced with these. It's too heavy, too big. Remember, Saul was a one head high, taller than any, every, everybody in Israelites. And then shepherd boy wearing, you could feel the awkwardness. There. So David put up, put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached 
the Philistine. Wow. So I learned, and I, I, I watched some YouTube as well. I, I think you could do that too. The, a lot of misconceptions about the sling itself, we think that it's a slingshot, like a you know, toy, right? Absolutely not. A sling was one of the ancient weapon, deadly weapon. There is a pouch in the middle and the arm's length of cords strap, and there's a usually ring, and so you could put the ring on one finger and put the the uh, child's side hand side pe- pebble or the smooth stone in this case, and then you will tone, hold on to it together and you will swing. And the, and the projectile of that swing, and when you let go one string and your finger is hanging in there still, that stone has a powerful impact. No, like the baseball player, professional baseball player, pitchers can throw that it feels like an impact of 45 handgun. So he has that. But as a staff, as a shepherd boy, he has the staff. Uh, it just gets interesting even more. Verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw, he dis- disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, handsome is, oh, he's cute. I mean, he's very cute. A little boy comes out. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of field. Goliath saw the staff, but not the real weapon. Not the real deadly weapon, the sling. And then wearing 125 pounds and then other Weapons also too. He can hardly move fast. So he needs to, he needs David to come to him close enough. But David has no plan to come close enough because it will be, the game will be over. But close enough approach him with the distance. As he runs, he takes out stone out of his Shepherd bag. I'm going ahead. Let's share, share this first. The second thing we need to see in this is God's way is different from the world's way. Fighting God's enemies, we are tempted to, to be on the world's term. But our seemingly weak weapons are actually powerful, deadly in God's way. The question that we are asking is that every day as we are fighting the spiritual battle to keep the faith, 
what strategy or tactics do we apply? Is it world's way or is it God's way? And even relational aspect also too. Do you use world way? Arguments? Strength and some somehow dress for power and all that? In your marriage, who gets who gets to be on top? In opinion wise? Who who wears the trouser? The God's way, seemingly weak, but it's not weak at all. Just think about it. Even if Saul wear his armor and his heaviest sword, and he goes out after Goliath, he has no chance because the strength after strength, strength versus strength in close proximity. No one has chance against Goliath. David, on the other hand, has a distance. And this, this sling is powerfully deadly. And he has the experience and skill set to throw the stone on target. So if this is not pragmatic solution for have faith and be, be positive and you could overcome your obstacles, when we think about our spiritual battles in your own way of living life, pragmatically, this is where prosperity gospel goes way wrong. Pragmatically, you might not overcome that. I get emotional even to think about how much we wanted my brother who had this brain disease, incurable disease, affected his speech impediment. He's a pastor. He's a right hand. He can't, he's a writer. What in the world is going on? So my, my mother, my dear mother, who's faithful, uh, not so much of good theology, but Good heart claims faith. If we all believe, God's going to take that away and he's going to speak so fluently and he's going to be powerful preacher continuing on and he will be able to come back to the pastoral ministry. He can hardly speak one sentence. He doesn't, he can't eat with even, not to mention typing or writing. He doesn't even use right hand to eat. He's obviously right-handed. Let me keep you in suspense because I'm going to finish this story a little later. If this is really about spiritual battle and overcoming the world, not the physical world, but the world in which the Satan's dominion is here. Do not love the world or things of the world. First John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that 
has overcome the world, our faith. Third and last lesson in this, the real lesson is about primarily not about us, but about Christ as our victor against Satan and his world. Do you remember growing up hearing this story? Who do you identify with? Who, who, to, to whose role do you put yourself? Uh, typically, David. But we're not David. We're actually the most fitting role is the terrified army who's watching all this. Who's David here? A picture of a type of Christ who is a representative for all of us, on behalf of us, he steps out. The, the battle that we cannot fight, he substitutes our place, a guilty place. And he imputes his righteousness. He imputes his victory on us. If he wins, that's our victory. This is what's happening in reality. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword of, and with a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of, the, of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will stri- strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give, give the dead bodies to the host of Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and the wild beast of, beasts of the earth that the whole, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. Can you imagine right in between eyes? The impact was so strong, it didn't bounce. It sank into that, broke into his skull. I don't know whether he immediately was killed by the impact or at least unconscious. So later on, the passage that we couldn't, we didn't finish the too long, he comes and he doesn't have any sword because staff and sling. He takes out the giant Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. And by that, Philistine army was terrified that they were running away. And Israelites going after them. 
now with so much of zeal and victorious shouts. You see, the, the most important lesson here is to see that David is a picture of Christ. That we are not pragmatically holding uh, possibility thinking or positive thinking to, to use faith to become better at something or to overcome something. Because if you think about David's life, his personal giant enemies or his personal giant problems in his life, he couldn't overcome some of them. We will study that. He's actually chased after not only King Saul, but later on his own son, Absalom, who took over his kingdom and tried to kill him. He couldn't save the baby. Came out of the adultery with Bathsheba. He adored that. He cried out. You see, no matter what happens in our lives, difficult things happen. We may not overcome it, but we could overcome the world to keep the faith, to honor God, to bring glory to God. And that's what's happening with my brother. And if you ask me, my men's group knows that. I get moody and depressed from time to time and lose appetite for ministry. A lot to do with my brother's condition. And I go over there and try to encourage him and bring my love language, which is food. And he loves Persian food. And I I learned to like that too. (laughs) Um, Just think about it. It makes me hungry. Their, Their rice is incredible, isn't it? Here's my brother. Doesn't say much. But he's not in foul mood. There's a sense of joy and a lot of tears in his face. He doesn't have a income, regular income. But God somehow supplies it, even from our congregation. I, I don't want to uh, undermine the the heart of the person anonymously puts from time to time cash in the, you know, put it in there. Just Tim's, my brother, Paul's brother, Pastor Tim. And when I give it to him, my sister-in-law is overjoyed. There's a thanksgiving and praise. And to see that my mom now, so not so much of a prosperity gospel anymore. She holds on to Thanksgiving and glorifying together. And this Christmas was extra special. Some of you guys saw that post. Uh, some of my brother's pastor friends and his colleagues, missionary friends, thought that and longed for his teaching to be available. You see, unlike me, he's in completely different ministry, Korean-speaking ministry. And he has actually translated several 20-some books from English to to Korean as a part-time job on top of his pastoral ministry. 
But he's an incredible teacher. And he's an incredible writer, too. The writings that he has done to teach his congregation and whatnot. There's so many of them available. And some of our church members, their parents, actually without my connection with them, have followed his teaching and, and so thankful. And then when we find out I'm his brother, oh, this, so it's such a great thing. But in my mind, what does it look like, Lord, to continue seek joy in this fighting, the, fighting to keep the faith, and fighting the fight of good faith? His pastor friends and colleagues took his teaching, writings, the Korea, and they published it. I got this as a gift on Christmas. And to see that, and there's a bunch of people, a group of people, about eight or nine of them, together right, wrote their foreword. Deeply touching. Some of them are very quite famous people too. For them to really long to see my brother's teaching. You know what? What comes to my mind is not that it's about time my brother needs to be known. No. Glory to God. God has a sovereign plan. His, his wisdom is higher and bigger than any one of us. And his, his friends are saying, this is the only the beginning. Because my brother has so many other things already written. And even his audio also too. What we are looking for is a pragmatic result of happy ending. And we get disappointed when God doesn't do that. But our God is greater and bigger. And our hope should not be the short-term outcome, but for eternity. God will give us the fruits of the victory. And even my brother's reaction on this, and I put a Facebook post. I was so proud of that book. And then I showed him. Not much of reaction. He just looks at it. He smiles. My brother wasn't always like that. He and I fought, fist fight every day when we were growing up. He and I were east, different, as different as east and west. Even the style of ministry philosophy was so different. My encouragement to you is that whether you are going through a difficult time or you're going through a lot of temptation these days, what I want to encourage you is to look to Christ. Focus on Christ. Our David, our representative, our champion, who substitutes and imputes his righteousness, his victory on us. And then Christ 
Our Lord Jesus has already won the victory. I come across the Tim Keller's writing on this, which was resonating with my heart so much. And he, he, these are his words, and eloquent words. There is, in the end, Keller writes, only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or basically about Jesus? In other words, is it basically about what I must do or basically what I, about what he has done? If I read David and Goliath as basically giving me an example, then the story is really about me. I must summon up the faith and courage to fight the giants in my life. But if I read David and Goliath as basically showing me salvation through Jesus, then the story is really about him. Until I see that Jesus fought the real giants, sin, law, death for me, I will never have the courage to be able to fight ordinary giants in life, suffering, disappointment, Failure, criticism, hardship. For example, how can I ever fight the giant of, giant of failure unless I have a deep security that God will not abandon me? If I see David as my example, the story will never help me, to help me fight the failure giant. But if I see David, Jesus, as my substitute, whose victory is imputed to me, then I can stand before the failure giant. As another example, how can I ever fight the giant of persecution or criticism unless I can see him forgiving me on the cross? I won't be able to forgive others. Unless I see him as forgiving me for failing asleep on him, in Matthew 27, 45, I won't be able to stay awake for him. Isn't that great? People of God, sisters and brothers, my call to you rather than pragmatic positive outcome of David and Goliath story that we are familiar with in children's story, let's take adult posture and approach to the real key lesson. Look to Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. And I, I won't go over this, but if I may be more directly suggest the application, we are to train ourselves in our daily spiritual battle for God's honor and glory. Secondly, we are to embrace what God has given us as our natural abilities and spiritual gifts in overcoming the world, no matter how small or weak it may appear to be. Thirdly, we are to trust in Christ as, as our champion and Savior who delivers us from our enemy, sin, Satan, and the world through his victory. May God Give us faith, increasing faith, 
that we may be able to have a perspective and humble confidence. And may God use each one of you and our church as we jump into, step into serving the refuge, working with the homeless, and reaching out to the people who are lost and marginalized, working with the poor, not because we're so great, but because our champion is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your reminder of our Lord Jesus being our champion. We pray that you will take our attention off on ourselves, on our improvement, self-improvement, a betterment, improving the conditions of our life pragmatically. But may we be focused to keep the honor of the Lord, to glorify God, to find joy in your glory, Lord. And in so doing, we anticipate your supernatural power to use us, to use our church in such a way that no human power can produce. I pray for comfort and encouragement and challenge for each one of us. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.